G'day folks and welcome to the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. My name's Josh Power and this podcast is an opportunity for me to interview anglers in the fly fishing community, both within Australia and overseas. I'll be speaking with people that I find interesting and inspirational, industry leaders and anglers that have helped pave the way for future generations and hopefully in turn preserve a piece of fly fishing history. I hope you enjoy the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Fisho's Tack World Harvey Bay, your one-stop fishing shop on the Fraser Coast stocking a wide range of fly tying materials and tackle with access to all the leading brands. Mako Eyewear, a proudly Australian-owned eyewear company that has been on the leading edge of polarised sunglasses for over 25 years. Manic Tackle Project, a collective of like-minded anglers bringing some of the world's best fly fishing brands to the Australian and New Zealand market, including Sims, Scott Fly Rods, Able, Ross and Waterworks Lamps and Reels, Airflow Fly Lines, Loon Outdoors and much more. And Garmin Australia, whether you're chasing a new chart plotter, fish finder, trolling motor or audio system, Garmin has you covered. Hi, I'm Matt Trippett. Uh, I live in the New South Wales Snowy Mountains uh, down in Jindabyne. Um, I'm a professional fly casting instructor, uh, guide, and also uh, founder and CEO of the organisation The Fly Program, which is a not-for-profit here in Australia, using uh, fly fishing as a mechanism to support Aussie blokes impacted by mental health adversity. Thanks for coming on today, Matt. Um, first of all, I'd like to talk about yourself a little bit and then we can dive into the fly program. So first of all, where did you grow up and how did you first get into fly fishing? Um, yeah, I'm, I've always been uh, really, really fortunate to, um, you know, been a country boy all my life. Um, I think built up environments is something that I'm not used to. Uh, so I grew up in uh, the northwest New South Wales, uh, up in Tamworth famously known as the Country Music Festival um, or Country Music Capital of Australia. Um, and uh, spent a lot of my time fly fishing as a, as a young kid, um, having two older brothers and, and a dad who also loved fishing, um, you know, getting up into the mountains. You know, half an hour driver could be into great trout water uh, up around uh, Niangla, Nowandock, Walker, places like that, uh, which is right on the top of the Great Divide at a, bit over a thousand meters so we had the alpine or subalpine salt fishing and then you know we get out west a little bit and we've got places like warabar and the namoy and the mcdonald and you know great cod fishing so you know it was i, I suppose recreational fishing starting with number one silters and two silters and big hard body lures um you know chasing trout and cod was a part of my my growing up um I picked up a fly rod when I was about 12 years old, 10, somewhere between 10 and 12 years of age. Um, and that was just an extension of, for me at the time, you know, um, just a, an interest in, in the sport or an obsession in the sport or the recreation. And it was just, yeah, an extension of me going down that pathway of being thrown in the deep end of exploring wild places with a fishing rod. So um my father and my brothers followed suit i was the youngest one out of the whole crew and you know a couple of years later they started to fly fish as well so um yeah that's that's where it really started uh for a lot of people um yeah it, it starts as as you know kids with with fathers or mothers 
uh, uncles, aunties, grandparents mentoring um, the young ones into the sport. And, you know, I'm really passionate about that with my own children as well. I think that's such an important thing to getting kids engaged with the outdoors and away from screen time and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, there's certainly my. Um, I, I'm nearly 41, so growing up in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, uh, in those very um, uh, formidable times in my life, there weren't screens. There was a TV and barely computers, I suppose, in my growing up. Um, but you know, most kids have got an iPad or a um an iphone and and there's a lot of pressure on them to be looking at you know flat dimensional screens all the time so i think we've got to be very deliberate as mentors of our young people and of our our own kids um in ensuring that we're giving them you know quality time in the outdoors whether it be with a fishing rod um or, or just getting out and going riding their bike or kicking the footy yeah, I think it's so important. Like I was um, very similar to you. I had a very fortunate upbringing with my family. We did a lot of um, like camping and hiking and that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of trips away, a lot of traveling. Uh, my grandfather, he was sort of the reason I got right into fishing at a young age and um, developed the passion. But I think it is so important getting kids out there and um, get them to enjoy the outdoors, getting away from the blue light of a screen and hopefully make some really good memories. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I, I look back to my childhood um, and, you know, some of my most fond memories are, are memories where mum and dad probably didn't have to invest a huge amount of money into those experiences. It was load the car up at the time and, you know, head out to the hills for a day. Um, and, you know, the cost of a bit of fuel and a packed sandwich was the extent of, of the trip. Um, and uh, we might think it's very, very simple, but you know, reflecting on it certainly moulded and shaped what I do today professionally and, and what, you know, I do for recreation and, you know, what I seem as important with my own children and, and um, you know, friends and family. So, um, you know, our investment right now is just so important for, you know, our next generation. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So you've gone from being a young fly fisher into your teens and that sort of thing. As you got older, like how did you get into the fly fishing industry or the fishing industry in general and when did you actually start guiding? Yeah, sure. So uh, when I finished uh, school, I, I went straight into university um, and uh, I went to university up in uh, Armidale, so New England Uni, uh, did a Bachelor of Education. Um, and while I was, you know, Armidale was a, an attractive place for me because it was, once again, it was close to a lot of really good fishing I didn't want to go to any of the cities um, and allowed me to go out and continue. I also uh, really, really love hunting as well. So I was able to you know, still go shooting and, and go fishing most afternoons after classes. So it was pretty awesome. Um, and, uh, yeah, I went into a teaching uh, career uh, back in Tamworth. Um, and then not long after that, there was an opportunity for me to move to the New South Wales Snow Mountains with my wife and at the time two kids. Um, this is about 12 years ago now, and the role was to develop and build uh, a business in the New South Wales Snow East, um, focused on um, summer tourism in adventure based uh, tourism out of Lake Krakenback Resort. And uh, it was a huge challenge for me, it was very different to the career I was already, um, you know, already uh, secured in. And, um, we took the job. It was a massive change for us, you know, nine-hour drive down south, and it also gave me the scope and the opportunity to formalise 
um, my love for you know for fly fishing in you know the the epicenter of you know Australian mainland best fly fishing for for trout. So we we bit the bullet and my wife and I moved and uh, we thought we'd give it a year. And uh, twelve years later, we're still here and uh, living in Jinnabon and we certainly call this place home. But I suppose you know. My focus with that role was to build up a you know a, a walks program up in the you know the main range overnight walks program up around Kosciuszko, build mountain bike programs, um, build photography programs. There was a series of things that you know my my role uh, was focused on developing. Uh, obviously, the Snowies have got a really busy and booming winter tourism program with you know snow sports, um, but now equally so. The, the summer tourism now is it's actually in fact commercially and um, visitation wise is overtaken during the summer months now so um, it's about building a really robust program out of Krakenbeck to ensure that people could have a good time uh, in the summer months and increase our tourism uh, and fly fishing was a part of that now at the time I thought oh, I was a pretty good fly fisherman I've been doing it for you know since I was a you know wee little kid and uh, being a 27 year old, I thought, yeah, no, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. Um, but uh, soon realised that uh, I, I thought, you know, for professional development, if I'm going to teach people how to fly fish, um, I probably need to develop my skills. And I've sat the um, uh, Federation of Fly Fishers International Program as a certified casting instructor, and that made me realise pretty quickly that I might have had a good fishing cast, but Technically speaking, as a as an instructor, I was pretty poor. Um, so I went through that program. I was, um, it really changed the way I thought about teaching and changed the way I thought about mentoring and guiding people out on the water. Um, and uh, yeah, it was successful to pass. Fortunately, with a lot of help and support from wonderful people in our fly fishing industry, coaching and mentoring me through. Um, and. Uh, yeah, without really advertising, started a very successful you know, business as a side hustle here in the mountains, um, teaching and guiding anywhere out to you know 150 days a year. So, um, uh, yeah, it's been a, a really, really, really um, awesome travel or experience for me. Uh, and it's just a part of that learning curve that we all sit on as fly anglers, whether we're right at the start of it or we're aspiring teachers or we've been in the industry for 50 years. Um, you know, this this learning cycle never, ever ends when we have a flyer in our hand. And, and I'm still learning every day, but um, I'm really, really fortunate to have, you know, helped thousands of people over the last 10 years uh, to enjoy the mountains and enjoy uh, our region through the eyes of a fly angler. It's been awesome. I think um, that teaching background definitely would have helped with your guiding and with the fly program. Like my wife's a teacher. Um, she's doing her master's at the moment to become a guidance officer and sort of help with um, intervention in the schools with kids that are struggling a little bit or having a hard time at home. And I think, um, yeah, you combine that with with fly fishing and that and it just yeah, really resonates with people. It makes it easier for the um, to get everything across and becoming a CCI, definitely for you having a better understanding of what makes a good cast, what makes a bad cast. Um, and we're pretty fortunate to have some really good CCIs in the country now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think, uh, I think you know, in the fly fishing industry, one of the first things that I realised that there was no, um, when I was first stepping into the professional arena, there was no, um, 
yeah, you needed your insurances, um, but, but that was kind of about it. Um, you know, to to be a professional, I, I found it that I don't want to just say I'm I'm uh, I'm a fly fishing guide and not have anything to you know independently to you know show the public that I've worked hard on my craft. Um, I still think it would be great to have some form of robust governing um, body that could help support uh, good guides in the industry, ensure that we're you now we're running um, really good businesses, and you know we come from from experience. Um, and uh, I thought probably the uh, the process of going through my CCI was an opportunity for me to really challenge myself, uh, and also you know give people confidence that um, I've worked hard on it. Uh, on on my casting instruction and and that would also be you know reflected in in guided experiences uh, out on the water as well so um, yeah and obviously having a teaching background um, understanding that everybody has different needs requirements um, we've got to you know have empathy for our for our clients and what you know meeting their expectations as as um, as paying customers so um, all of that put together. It's certainly been really, really helpful, but I continue to work very, very hard on, on my casting. I would like to to finish my master's program over the next few years. Obviously, COVID's had a big interruption with that, uh, with our, um, our governing um, assessment um, guys coming down from the States, but we will get there over the next few years, I'm sure. Yeah, I really feel for a lot of the guides and like the... Um basically anyone in hospitality or any of those outdoor sort of experiences just because with COVID it's been such a, a big impact. Um, I know blokes like even Justin Duggan down in Sydney, he's been hit really hard with it just with lockdowns and, and now the poor guys down there are just copying so much severe weather. Um, it really, the last couple of years has been a trying time for a lot of guides and operations. Yeah, that that's that's absolutely true. I, I think, um, yeah, Particularly, like you know, I know Justin very, very well. We we both sit on the New South Wales um, Recreational Fishing Advisory Committee for the uh, Minister of uh, DPI. Uh, so we catch up with Justin quite a lot, and you know, obviously they've got a lot of fresh water in the harbour um, throughout all of summer. So weather's had a big impact. Tourism's had a big impact, um, and guiding in itself is as enjoyable and rewarding as it is. Um, yeah, it's it's also a bloody hard job. <laughs> like it's a really really hard job. You know, you're getting up each day. You work very very hard. So, I think um, as an industry, it has it has taken a few shots. But on the flip side of all of that, and I think we're probably nearing normality again. Is that you know through COVID, I think it's the silver linings out of all of it is that you know people have really really wanted that authentic experience again, and and getting back into the outdoors when for so many people that have been stuck inside, um, getting back outside and experiencing real um, real life experiences is something that we really have a strong desire for again. And so I encourage anybody out there who, you know, enjoys a bit of fishing or enjoys the outdoors, you know, get yourselves booked in with a guide because um, there's a wonderful opportunity for you to re-engage with nature and get outside and have some, you know, real memorable experiences again because it's all systems go now. Yeah, I think too, like you're in such a beautiful part of the world and we do have so many remote places like that in Australia that you can really get out into the wild and just leave the phone at home and basically just unwind, forget about work, forget about the bills, just get out there and enjoy. Um, and we are lucky that we have so much of that here and 
I think for a lot of people, including myself, like I get pretty bad anxiety and that sort of thing. Um, and for me, like going down to the river, like if I'm going freshwater fishing, it's super relaxing, either jumping in the flow tube or going for a walk down the bank there, just throwing a few flies on that for bass and sooties and whatnot. And it's a good way for me to just, yeah, drown out the rest of everything that's sort of happening in my life and, and really, yeah, just get back to nature and, and yeah, just unwind. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's, you know, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, a little bit later in the podcast, but there's so many um, clinically supported, you know, so much clinically supported evidence out there to to indicate that, you know, time in the outdoors um, and, you know, physically active in the outdoors is so, so important for our well-being. Um, and I, I certainly feel that COVID's had a big impact around lockdowns. You know, I feel for a lot of, I'm sure there's a lot of your listeners who have been stuck in high, highly urbanised areas and may have even been stuck in a flat for uh, in a complex over the, you know, the last couple of years. Um it's really going to be very, very challenging on people's mental health and, and well-being. So, um, you know, getting back outside again and having the opportunity to travel, whether it be just to your local creek or beach, um, getting out to the park, that time in the outdoors is, is so important. And, uh, and I hope that's a lesson that we've all learnt in the last couple of years is that we really have to prioritise that and, um, and focus on, you know, getting out, outside again and, and re-engaging with real experiences and and uh, and not phones and tablets and, and computer screens. Yeah, yeah, completely agree with all of that. So in regards to travel, like pre-COVID, where are, the, where are some of the places that fly fishing have taken you both like around the country and internationally as well? Yeah, um, fly fishing uh, has been very, very kind to me in lots of ways. Um, I've been fortunate to see pretty much all of Australia, um, you know, from obviously uh, I spend you know, nearly a couple of hundred days in a year, whether it be through guiding or my own adventures here in the New South Wales Snowies. Um, so that's that's been really, really awesome. And, you know, in this, own, in this region itself is just uh, there's so many different systems that you can explore, obviously uh, all with trout. Um, so I've, I've extensively, you know, lived and breathed uh, the mountains as much as I, I've been able to over the last 10 years and it's been awesome. But obviously, you know, uh, I get down to Tassie every year two or three times. Um, I've done, you know, Exmouth over in WA three times. Um, uh, up north, uh, up in Hinchinbrook Island, um, uh, right across Australia, I think the only place I ha- only state I haven't fished in in Australia is South Australia, um, but everywhere else I have um, Northern Territory, uh, and then internationally, uh, like most Aussies, I've probably done a dozen trips over the ditch and uh, fished both North and South Island. I haven't done any saltwater. Um, I have I have done one saltwater trip, but it was focused on trout. It wasn't on snapper or kingies or anything like that. Uh, and uh, and have had some brief visits to places like Vanuatu and New Caledonia, uh, but that was more sort of family holidays at the time, so it was fairly brief, not dedicated fishing trips. Um, there's a lot of a uh, lot of other places I would like to visit, uh, but you know, my wife and I got married pretty young and had kids pretty young, so that's had some limitations um, on uh, on on how much we've been able to travel. We always made the decision that we would travel later as adults. 
um, and maybe enjoy that with our kids as they're, you know, teenagers and, and, and young adults themselves. So that's the plan. I think that's a pretty good decision too. Like I was lucky enough to do a fair bit of overseas travel with my parents um, in my early teen years. Like, um, and that was so good, like just to basically broaden your horizons and show you that there is more out there and to really get involved in different cultures. And I think that is a really good call. Um, a lot of people, yeah, just sort of worry about what they're going to do themselves. But I think involving your family, it just brings it to a whole nother level. And I'm hoping when I have kids, I can do the same thing for them, give them the same opportunities. Yeah, that's right. Um... I uh, I think there's been a big shift too, as as my kids have grown. My wife and I we've got four children. Um, our eldest fourteen, youngest down to four. Uh, and whether I'm going out on a, a a fly fishing trip or I'm out on a on a hunting trip, um, I feel actually pretty selfish now if I'm out there on my own. Um, and I really really miss the company of particularly the children uh, on those trips. So more and more I'm finding now that a lot of the fishing and experiences that we're having out in the mountains, uh, hunting, I, I certainly get out and have some time to myself, but I more and more want my children a part of that experience with me now because they're resilient and robust and demonstrate the interest and the love and the passion that you know I also share. So I don't want to, I don't want to sort of let them miss out on anything as well. So that's also shaping a lot of the decisions I have now. So, yeah. Well, if you could, um, if you could drop everything right now, pack up the family, go right over. We're going on a holiday here. Where do you think that'd be? Like whether it be in Australia or overseas? Yeah, I think uh, the top of my list, uh, and you know, plans are already in place. It's New Zealand's always amazing to go down south, and would love to spend more time in the South Island, exploring some rivers uh, down there in the backcountry, uh, and you know, doing a bit of red deer hunting at the same time. But I think the top of the list is you know. Northern America, um, really, really keen to uh, explore some of the wilderness up in and around Alaska um, and uh, from, you know, big systems with two-handed rods through to, you know, some of the creeks and, and streams, seeing, you know, wild bears and, and things like that is right on the top of my list and doubling that up maybe with a, uh, an elk bull tag at some stage with my bow would be something I'd like to do, so... I think we would love to do that as a family. It's probably 10 years away, I'm guessing, because uh, it's going to cost a mint. But I think that's that's what we would do if we could do anything. Yeah. yeah there's, um, there's certainly plenty of places that it can take you. And because you do have sort of, you do enjoy all those outdoor pursuits as well, it, it doesn't always just have to be about fly fishing. And I think for people, like if they jump onto like your social media accounts and Instagram and that sort of thing, they can see how much you enjoy time with your family and, um what sort of other outdoor pursuits do you find yourself gravitating towards apart from just like your fly fishing and yeah i think uh we're really really fortunate in the snowies that we have four really distinct seasons um and uh sometimes you can get those seasons in one day um as the saying goes but um you know the summertime is a real focus on you know obviously uh fly fishing dry fly and there's a lot of work commitments with that as well i enjoy mountain bike riding um, good way to get outside and exercise the lungs. Um, and then coming into Easter, um, I will still be teaching fly fishing, but I'm not doing as much myself. Um, and I'm really, really focused on, on the deer season at that point in time. Uh, I started out doing a lot of shooting as a young guy, um, rabbits and foxes and things like that. But, uh, 
I really enjoy uh, deer hunting with a with a bow. Um, so here in uh, in the Snowies, we've got a lot of you know populations of fallow deer, red deer, samba deer, um, rusa deer. So pretty much from April onwards or March onwards, I'm dedicating a lot of my time to uh, deer hunting and stalking up in the hills. Um, and, uh, and that'll extend right throughout winter because, you know, obviously, um, the, the temperatures are really, um, are really good for, you know, harvesting an animal and it protects the meat. We, you know, we can leave it out in a tree and, uh, and let the meat rest. Um, I'm not a, a just a, a, a horn hunter. Um, I, you know, I really, really enjoy the process of taking, uh, meat from the landscape as well. And with the kids, we'll prepare. Uh, meals we'll make sausages and salamis and smoked meats etc from from what we from what we take um i love my skiing um and uh so yeah probably do about 30 days up on the hill as well skiing uh and snowboarding i probably skiing's my favorite these days um and then yeah you start moving into springtime and and the fly fishing starts again so yeah i, I just love lots and lots of things and i think it's also reflected in the company that you share with one another and you know all of those things we we do that as a family uh that's really important to me and you know i've got a very strong network of friends that also like to share a lot of those things with with us as well but if we can be into the outdoors and and enjoying nature at its fullest that's what it's all about for me it's definitely an incredible area where you um where you live like it's it really is a lifestyle not just a hobby um, it's very similar to a few mates in America and that sort of thing where they'll have their duck hunting season and they'll be going chasing deer, but then they'll be off chasing trout and tarpon and that sort of thing. And they basically revolve life and the calendar around what season it is. Yeah, it's funny. It, you know, all, uh, all my calendar, I'm very, very busy uh, professionally. I have a lot of commitments, um, but, you know, I do put in the calendar some, some blocks in there um, that I try not to make any bookings over around the the deer season um and uh and same you know for for the trout season as well i need to have some time to decompress a little bit myself um and uh and spend time away from hosting people to having some time that got me into fly fishing from the very very young age of you know 10 or 12 you know um there's a i suppose a, a large commercial value to fly fishing in in my life um there has to be a point in time where I can remove myself from the com- commercial side and just enjoy it for what it is as a participant again. And, and I really, really value that. And I've got to put it in the diary sometimes. But, uh, yeah, we're very, very fortunate to have so much to do down here. I think that is such a, um important thing, especially because you are hosting people and guiding. It'd be easy to get burnt out. So it is very important to have some like me time and um, basically get away from it all. So then that way you can be the best guy, you can be the best father, the best friend, that sort of thing. And I think when we get back to the outdoors, it, um, it invigorates us and really makes our life um, a lot more pleasant for everyone around us. And Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true, mate. And um, you know, having balance um, is really, really important. Um, it's uh, yeah, you, your relationship to fly fishing and there's probably a few, a uh, few people in the industry who have been in it longer than me. You know, I've I've heard a few guys who I you know really really respect in the industry talk about burnout and and even sort of their relationship with fly fishing has changed a great deal. Um, 
and uh, and their relationship with the industry has also changed. And I just I'm really really you know um, really really careful on ensuring that I'm able to step away from the industry. Um, at times, as maybe somebody who helps or supports or influences people um, with fly fishing and and also re-engaging some of the reasons why I fell in love with the sport uh, as a little guy. And, and sometimes that is not carrying a backpack on my back with 2,000 different flies as options that I might have with a, with a client. Um, but sometimes it's just going out there with a dozen flies and a little fly box and, uh, and one roll of tippet and wearing a pair of sneakers and a pair of shorts and not cluttered out and just going for a, a really hardcore lightweight trip and just fall in love with, you know, the feeling of, you know, climbing over rocks and water on your skin. And, you know, as a kid, I didn't have flash teams waders and didn't have, you know, 20 different rods to choose from. Uh, it's making do with what you have. And, and, uh, and I do try to revisit that from time to time throughout the season to ensure that keeping that balance. And, you know, sometimes if I can have one of the kids tag along with me, it's also, uh, it's also really special to share that with somebody who I love and care about. Yeah. So we might even segue from there, um, basically talking about like taking time out for yourself and making sure that um, you're not burning out and that your mental health is intact and you're not basically waking up every day, just putting on some clothes going, oh, it's just another day. Um, I remember when I first heard about the fly program, I was at the after gala dinner one year and you did a presentation. And when I heard the presentation, I just thought this is such an amazing um, initiative and it's got so much potential to do good in the community. Would you be able to just elaborate uh, basically what the FLY program is? Yeah, absolutely, mate. Um, I'll start right at the very, very beginning. Um, And I had a lot to do with my career change here in the Snowies. Um, One of the things that was really, really uh, evident to me out on the water and many people you know, who have spent any time with anybody out on the water. It doesn't matter if you're fly fishing or if you're, you know, sitting in a boat, soaking a bait. It doesn't matter what you're doing. When you're in the outdoors, um, sitting shoulder to shoulder with you, uh, with somebody, it, it it is a massive pathway or a really powerful pathway where people can just decompress. Um, it's an environment where particularly, um, well, men and women, but particularly men, and I'll talk more about this in a moment, um, can have you know, have a bit of banter and have a laugh, but there can also be some really powerful conversations of, you know, meaning and substance extracted from time out on the water. And I noticed that as a professional, you know, it didn't matter if somebody was a a bricklayer and it didn't matter if somebody was a, you know, top flight surgeon. Um, the conversations that you have with these people out on the water was consistently, you know, something very, in a very, very, short period of time people would be talking about a lot of things that were you know pretty meaningful in their lives um wasn't just about the footy scores or cricket scores on the weekend um and i always found that quite amazing but i didn't think too hard about it but a family event really really made me think very very hard about it um in 2013 uh my wife's brother um we had no idea, but was obviously going through a very, very challenging period in his life. Um, and, you know, I've always been very, very tight-knit with her family, as Millie is with ours. Um, we grew up uh, together in each other's households as, you know, family friends until we realised that we were probably a thing and we got married pretty young. Um, 
but always having a very close relationship with her brothers. Uh, this hit hard, really, really hard for me as well personally. And he lost his life to suicide. He took his own life. Um, we had no no idea that you know he was facing any um, any uh, any struggles uh, to that extent. And it, so it was it was shocking. And uh, I think in the process of dealing with with um, the loss of his life. Um, there was certainly a lot of questions asked of myself and why didn't I know what was going on and and maybe I had a skill set as some, some of the rawness of the pain subsided. Um, maybe I felt as though I had an opportunity to help somebody else in our community by spending some time on the water with them because you know, we've, I've been exposed to all these amazing people who have shared their stories with me getting people out to the outdoors and maybe spending some time fishing. So I connected with a lot of other not-for-profits in the Australian industries um, right across from, you know, Movember to Black Dog Institute to, you know, any of the smaller not-for-profits as well just to see if I could help out with a fishing program and maybe, you know, teach people how to cast a fly line, spend a few days in the snowies and, uh, and just give them an opportunity to sort of decompress. Because one of the things I'd realise is that, you know, in the mental health sector, uh, clinical support for people who have been impacted by mental health adversity, you know, that's where all the money was being dropped. And I just couldn't understand why, um, you know, we're not doing more in the prevention-based space, um, the space around giving people a toolbox or, toolbox or resources uh, around prevention and early intervention. And, uh, and I thought we could do that through fly fishing. Uh, it was very difficult to get any sort of inroads with any of the big not-for-profits all the smaller ones and i've probably come to realize that now how busy that they all are and under-resourced in many ways so i surrounded myself with a uh, a boardroom of pretty spectacular people men and women um, and uh, all very high caliber individuals who were all happy and prepared to meet with me in canberra and i put it on the table that we would or how I could start a not-for-profit here in Australia um, and, you know, found an organisation with a health promotion charity uh, focus on early intervention and prevention-based strategies using fly fishing and other things like mountain bike riding and, you know, hiking in the mountains and cooking over a fire and all of the, you know, the raw, organic, authentic experiences that many of us enjoy as outdoorsmen and outdoorswomen. Um one thing led to another. We were an organisation. Six months later, a huge amount of work got invested into that process. Support from clinical psychologists and you know uh, professionals in in the law and uh, governance and accounting. And I had a board. Um, and very very quickly, um, I was in a discussion with the owner of Anytime Fitness here in Australia, Richard Peel, and he said, "You can't do this, Matt." without having a full-time staff member. I know it's not-for-profit, but, mate, this, this organisation's not going to get off the ground unless if somebody's dedicated to to getting it off the ground over the first, particularly the two years. And, uh, you know, I was the main breadwinner and I thought, well, I'm going to resign from my role at Lake Krakenback and I'll just focus on guiding and try and get my family through on a um, guiding wage. And he said, no, what we're going to do is I'm going to fund the first two years of your employment. And uh, he, you know, incredibly out of his own 
uh, back pocket, put 60 grand in a year into the organization to ensure that we had a full-time staff member getting this thing off the ground. And I think that's uh, one of the most generous things that's obviously ever happened in my life. Um, he didn't do that through through the company. He did that through his own um, his own uh, savings. And since that day, mate, we you know, we're, we're six years into the program and we have had you know, literally hundreds, hundreds of men from right across Australia and one guy overseas um, attend multi-day retreats with us in the New South Wales Snowies. Um, and uh, and the program is yeah it's it's had a, a direct impact on on a huge community um, and it's the people um, like Richard uh, who have supported us from the start from corporate partners to people making a five dollar donation to people who make a reoccurring donation uh, through to the companies who have booked us for FIFA service work uh, it has allowed us to um, you know support such a an incredible um, um, group of people who uh, who have then in turn used their experiences to also help more people in the community, and uh, it's just been amazing, mate. It really has been, and I think probably that speech back at AFTA was about year two of the organisation. I was very raw and very enthusiastic. I'm still very enthusiastic, but um, you know things have grown a lot since then. Um, and uh, and so of our responsibilities. <laughs> so, but it's just been an incredible, incredible pathway to help participants or men in our community. And the reason why our focus is on men, and it's not to say that women don't love recreational fishing. You know, I've got a daughter and a wife. And I love them to be in the outdoors and enjoy the outdoors. But some of the the statistics that I focused on very very early on is where's the hole in our industry and why are we losing, you know. You know, five out of seven people every day are men to suicide. Um, so we've got a real problem as men with um, with suicide rates, um, and it's probably not the space that we're working in directly because we're more on prevention and early intervention. But another area where we're very low on stats or very high on stats is that our help seeking strategies as blokes we're seventy percent less likely to reach out for any form of social support. So talking about talking to your wife or your girlfriend or your partner or your parents or a mate when we're going through hardships mentally um, and uh, and recreational fishing you know we've got one quarter of our population here in Australia are regular uh, recreational anglers and of that population it's about 80 percent of men so we felt that there was a great opportunity for us to use recreational fishing something that men have got a lot of empathy for already to maybe use that as a help seeking strategy and learn tools and and uh, and strategies around dealing with you know challenges that we're going to face in our life because the reality is every person one on one people at some point in their life are going to face some form of mental health adversity or be connected to somebody who has um, so um, that was our focus and we thought that you know working in that men's health space um, and trying to you know, improve some of those statistics around men's help seeking and lowering those suicide rates in our community is something that we're really focused and and uh, and that's where we get our purpose from as an organisation. I think it is um, so important for men to, if they are having a rough time, to reach out and talk to a mate or talk to your partner or family. Um, I know a few years back when I turned 30, I went through a bit of a rough patch and I think it was just one of those things where 
oh, I'm no longer in my 20s, got to start thinking about what I want to do with the rest of my life. I was looking at getting married and starting to think about kids and all that sort of thing. Um, and I was very fortunate that I do have such a, a supportive partner, family, and like one of my best mates who I've known since, oh, geez, preschool. He was outstanding when I reached out to him. Um, yeah, he said, righto, mate, we're going fishing today. I'm like, okay, let's go. <laughs> and then um, a lot of stuff like, righto, let's go fishing, let's go camping and doing that with the missus and his partner as well. And it was so good to have that support network around me. Um, and I think for so many guys, they think it is a bit weak to to seek help or speak, um, especially I've got a lot of mates that are um, tradies and that sort of thing. And because they are in um, a lot of the stuff is like they just sort of brush it off and um, quite a masculine sort of job. Um, but it is good to see more and more people reaching out for help and getting that early intervention. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things and some of the language we like to use, um, and we've all faced it, with, you know, we're on a fly fishing podcast here and we'll use sort of um, maybe recounting everybody who's listening to this, recount one of your most favourite experiences with a fly rod in, in your hand. Um, and if you're new to fly fishing, it might be, you know, with conventional fishing methods or another outdoor experience. But when I recall on the things that I've enjoyed the most as an angler, as a fly angler, it has been at some point in time in that trip really really hard <laughs> like my most favorite memories it, it could be around being really really cold or really really tired or it could be uh, being really exposed to you know a weather event um, something challenging has happened in that scenario um, and I think it's really really important that as men you talked about you know it's you know feeling weak can be something that we're not comfortable with um, Wherever we can create settings or environments where people feel vulnerable with our physical world, you know, it could be standing in a, in a river, for instance, feeling vulnerable, feeling small at the foothill of a big, big mountain range in a wild river. We can use that vulnerability as a physical demonstration that it is okay to be vulnerable mentally and emotionally. Um, and, you know, to be vulnerable to talk to your wife and say, listen, for the last couple of weeks, I have been struggling with this, we are really, really vulnerable in that in that sense of that conversation. But it can also be the catalyst for one of the best things that we can do in our lives as men around our well-being and our mental mental fitness. We love to use the terminology around mental fitness, and uh, and growth comes from vulnerability. Growth doesn't come from comfort. Growth, you know, comes from a place where sometimes we're up against it. Um, and I think we've got some beautiful illustrations that we use and we try to use through the fly program. Um, be comfortable to be vulnerable. Like, you know, whether it be carrying a, a footy, um, you know, carrying the ball up into the line in a, in a game of rugby, you're vulnerable. You're running into a strong defensive line. You're, you're vulnerable. We do it in the physical world all the time as blokes. But as soon as we talk about emotions, um, mental well-being and communication, talking, all of a sudden, we shut up shop, and I think that's pretty piss weak. I think, <laughs> I think as guys, we've we've, we've got to be uh, okay to feel vulnerable in our conversations as well, um, and uh, not only for our own well-being, but it's translated in our relationships with our wives and partners, and it's translated in our relationships with our bloke mates as well. Um, and uh, so maybe next time you're out on the water with somebody, it could be a really good opportunity to maybe talk about. 
you know, vulnerability in conversations and, and, uh, and rather maybe just talking about the scores on the weekend, maybe have a, put a bit of gravity in the conversation and, and talk about some things that's going on in your life if, if you need to. Yeah. And with, if someone does want to participate in like one of the men in flight programs, um, is it something they can refer themselves or is it like a community referral or how does uh, absolutely, that work? Absolutely, mate. It's, um, so on our website, the main program that we run is called uh, Men in Flight, as, you, as you've indicated. Um, and we have um, programs going pretty much all year in the New South Wales Snow Mountains. It's a four-day retreat. In those four days, all accommodation, meals, all uh, all fly fishing instruction, all you know, you get a mountain bike to ride. Um, we just yeah, just have the most amazing time using the wilderness as an incredible platform to create some amazing experiences um, and just spend some time to decompress and 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 learn a few things around you know maintaining our well being from physical health to to mental health. So um, and. If you're interested in the program and you, you would like to you know, make an inquiry, you can absolutely make a self-referral. Uh, I like to probably use the, the terminology around bookings um, just because I think it's a, it's a program that's relevant to every bloke out there um, because you know, if you feel like you've not gone through any form of mental health adversity, that's absolutely fine because the reality is at some point in your life you are. So um, if you're listening to this, there's a great opportunity for you to come along and, and spend some time in the mountains. Um, probably the the next important thing to say from that is that we do a lot of fundraising. We have some amazing corporate partners and we do a lot of fee-for-service work. And what I mean by fee-for-service work is in the corporate sector, we do a lot on resilience in the workplace. We've done a lot of work uh, with you know, high-performance sporting teams we generate a lot of revenue through that. So that revenue is then reinvested back into the community. So um, there may be some people in the community who are in a financial position to afford to go on a program and pay their own way, uh, which is heavily subsidised already. So that all-inclusive retreat is $1,400. But for members of the community who don't have uh, a means to afford to get into the program, that's not a barrier because we use... um, use our fundraising we have an amazing scholarship program where we see hundreds of men go through this program at no cost to them whatsoever so um you know it's something that we we feel uh we want every man in our community or all men in our community feel like that this is a program relevant for them with or without experiences of mental health adversity and uh jump on the website make an inquiry and we will send you out all the details um which is, yeah, very, very easy to do, or you can refer a buddy. So, yeah. And do you guys do corporate retreats as well? Like if a company or business wants to get everyone involved? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, and all clinically backed once again, you know, for I think for every dollar that you spend on your staff, um, you know, you invest in your staff, um, you you get about a $2.40 return uh, based on, you know, retention of staff, staff being happy, staff not being absent while they're at work but you know being really productive so uh yeah we do have corporate programs and we've worked with the you know australian rugby for three years doing uh programs for their under 20s wallabies program from you know 60 guys rocking up in the mountains all the way through to um smaller businesses that um, might have four staff for instance and we're doing you know intensive four-day retreats 
two-day retreats, one-day presentations, um, and uh, we can do that here in the Snowies or we can travel anywhere within Australia and, and host those as well. So um, the really nice thing about that is is not only are you getting a world-class program delivered in your workplace, um, but you have um, you know the, the knowledge that those funds and resources that have been generated through that support for for that work is going back into the community and supporting blokes who who may not have the financial means to go through this program um it's your corporate sponsorship or um dollars that will be supporting somebody through a program and some of the um what we've spoken about anytime fitness being a, a big supporter of the program what are some of the other um sponsors or like either in the industry or outside of the industry that are helping you out yeah, listen, I think um, indirectly, like any time said from the very, very start, we're going to support you as a principal partner for two years to get you off the ground. Um, and that was incredible. You know, um, that was just such an amazing partnership. But we've been very, very fortunate on a government perspective and also corporate, also, you know, through the profit sector as well. Um, we've been um, successful on two occasions with um, New South Wales recreational fishing licence fees, um, supporting men through programs. Um, we've seen over 120 men supported through programs through New South Wales Recreational Fishing Trust Fund. So fishing licences going to work, supporting the community. So I'm a big advocate of you know, fishing licences in states and territories where the, those funds can be reinvested back into fisheries and, and people of recreational fishing. Um, and, uh, you know, from corporate partners through to, you know, crop, uh, sorry, Bayer uh, Crop Science, who... Um, we do a national fishing program for farmers right across Australia, um, encouraging farmers to come together in rural environments, spending time fishing with one another. Um, that's a that's probably you know our largest partnership that we have at the moment. Um, we have uh, Yeti from day one um, have been massive supporters of of the work that we're doing here in the community, um, and we've just uh, announced um, or just about to announce. Um, uh, another very exciting um, venture with Yeti moving forwards. Um, Manic Tackle Project, Rene Vaz from Manic, who, you know, he's from the outs, you know, from the very, very start of the organisation, he was all over it. And uh, and they've been very, very kind with um, supporting us with fly fishing equipment and, uh, and gear, waders, things like that. Um, yeah, Mako Eyewear, they've been massive supporters. Um, through to Screencraft Media out of Canberra, smaller businesses uh, that are more localised who have helped out. We've had law support. We've had support from all different places, Hobie, Asia, Pacific. It's just been overwhelming. And I think that's probably the thing that I find hardest in many ways in my job is being uh, exposed to the amount of generosity from corporate partners through to you know the, the guy down the road or the or the, the wife uh, down the road, is that people's generosity towards a fly program, um, this organisation is built on a family. We talk about family all the time um, because we treat everybody who's had a positive influence and impact on this organisation um, as a part of our own, uh, and we really, really believe that. The day that we stop like the, the day that a 50 cent donation may be made from some kid emptying out their money tin and making a donation and the day that that doesn't have an impact on me um 
uh, as a founder is the day that I've got to leave the industry in the not-for-profit sector because you know, it's it's just so remarkable that people have just made incredible sacrifices for the sake of an organisation helping the community and it really has, um, you know, it's emotionally it can be really, really taxing on you. It sounds a bit funny, but um, to see that generosity and exposed to it so regularly, um, you know, there's just a, a great sense of probably the only way I can say it is a great sense of love and gratitude that we have as an organisation for our incredible family of corporate sponsors and donors and, and people who make donations. It's just, uh, it really is quite bloody impressive and uh and we'll always remain grateful for everybody's support because, you know, as an organisation, we love to see that money at work. We love to see, you know, somebody picking up a fluoride for the first time and seeing that connection to feeling a rod loading under line, to seeing a fly drifting down a rapid and a fish coming out of the water to eat it. We get to relive these experiences time and time again and see how it moulds and shapes people's lives for the better. Um, we're really, really spoiled at the organisation to see that all the time. Those people who are making these donations, I think many cases will make a donation, could hurt the pocket, um, but they don't see that donation at work. We're really privileged to see it at work every day and it's uh, it's really humbling. And as I said, we're just full of love and gratitude for our amazing family of, uh, of people right across Australia. I think it's really refreshing to hear too that um, some of the industry sponsors giving back to that community because um, it's it's quite easy for for bigger businesses and companies to happily take your money with products and that sort of thing but um, it is nice to see them giving back like I know Mako Eyewear they're a great company they're even helping support the podcast which is really good um, Renee's doing a great job with Manic Tackle Project bringing some really good brands to Australia and New Zealand um, and even Yeti like it's the last few years we sell a truckload of Yeti gear through the shop um, and it's been a very popular brand associated with the outdoors. So it is really good to see those companies giving back and helping out in a big way. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I, I, I just, I, I think it's not every company does it either. Um, you know, we've, we've been exposed, I suppose, to the industry all the way from after. Um, I've sat in board level meetings right at the very top of the industry all the way down to you know the local fishing tackle shop like yourself um uh and i think where you see corporate partners like mako like manic like yeti make these sort of commitments in supporting not-for-profit causes in our community because mate at the end of the day the not-for-profit sector is as competitive <laughs> as the profit sector because uh, there are so many not-for-profits out there asking for support um you know these organisations and companies that you know, are supporting us um, really do put a lot of trust in your hands as well to ensure that we do a to do a right uh, a right job by the community. It's something that we do take very very seriously and something that you know is at the forefront of our thinking uh, around ensuring that you know this support is maximised in our community. Um, and you know, I would say unbiasedly like the the companies that support us um who don't want to be called out on podcasts and they don't want their names up on our website and they don't want to have the attention drawn to themselves because they're doing it for the right reasons they're the companies that we should be putting our hands in our pockets and and, and purchasing gear through these organizations because um they really do really do support our work and i know that there's other projects that they also support in our community that you know they're just they're good people, good companies doing the right thing.
And I think um, like aligning yourself with good people like that, I know even just in my own personal purchases and that sort of thing, I like to deal with companies and brands that um, show that support for the community and the industry. And um, yeah, it is, it is um, quite exciting just to see all that. So with the not-for-profit side of things, if people want to make a donation, you're, like everything's completely tax deductible come tax time. Um, they can is the best way just to jump on your website to make a donation and are there different tiers of sponsorship or donations that they can yeah do? absolutely so um, technically speaking we're, we're an organization with a DGR status or a charity with a DGR status now DGR status means that yeah for any donation over two dollars or more uh, you'll receive a tax deductible receipt for that and uh, when the tax man comes around um, you can claim uh, that donation so yeah we're a national health promotion charity, um, and, uh, yeah, you can get a receipt. On the website, there is a link that says Donate Now. It's on my email signature and on the website, and you can click on there and you can make a once-off contribution to um, to the organisation where those funds, 100% of those funds, are used for the community programs. So they're not going into administration, they're not going into you know, anything else but supporting participants through programs. That's 100% of where the fees go. Oh, sorry, those donations go. Um, you may like to do a reoccurring uh, donation where once a fortnight on payday, you make a $10 uh, donation or, um, you, or you can make less or you could make more. And, and there's a, a tier of strategies around that. Um, a $10 donation may be supporting meals for a participant on one day of a program through to... Uh, resupplying for fishing equipment, whatever it may be, um, all the way through to making a once-off donation or a yearly donation of $1,400, which is going to support a whole participant through a program who has no financial means to be able to support themselves through there. Um, so there's lots and lots of different ways you can do it. We've been very, very fortunate to um, you know, have other participants, and I've, I've actually done it recently myself, I'm a big guy. I'm six foot four and 112 kilos. And two weeks ago, I ran a marathon uh, up in the snowies here on a trail run marathon. Now, I've never run that in my life. And, um, you know, I did a GoFundMe page, for instance, for the fly program. And, uh, and it raised a huge amount of funds with the support of some people who did a mountain bike ride as well. Um, and, uh, and we did it as a GoFundMe event. So you might think, oh, I'd like to get out and do a GoFundMe event. It might be a barbecue at your workplace or whatever. The Fly Program is a registered charity on GoFundMe as well, so you can find us there as well. So your imagination, let it run wild. Um, we have a very, very, very exciting program coming up in the month of October. Maybe you and I need to catch up again, mate, because about July <laughs> we're going to launch a national program uh, that is focused on getting people into the outdoors over the month of October, and uh, which is World Mental Health Month. And... Uh, we would love to see many of your listeners out and about spending time with their kids, with their mates, fishing, hunting, camping, riding their bikes, whatever it may be, spending time in the outdoors and looking after their well-being. Sounds exciting. Yeah, it's one of those things that there's some great initiatives out there like Take a Kid Fishing Day and I think there's um, definitely room for more of that sort of thing, getting people engaged in the outdoors and being active. Absolutely, mate. Uh, it's, it's, it's good for us and I think COVID... Uh, has probably 
irritated the community somewhat with lockdowns, but use that as a bit of purpose to ensure that you're making you know meaningful change to your life. That the outdoors is a part of the uh, fabric of your life moving forwards. And uh, if you need to prioritize it, and sometimes put it in your diary like I have to, um, you know, prioritize it. You know, we, we've got to um, we've got to be using the outdoors as a part of our lives. Uh, it's so important for us to get sun on the skin and you know, exercise the lungs and fresh air and, and share these experiences, whether it be with your kids or your mates or um, whatever it may be. But you know, spending time in the outdoors is so, so important for our well-being as people and can be as simple as going for a walk in the park. So get get started. It, it, it's definitely good for the soul and to hit the reset button every now and then. Like I know I've got a yearly planner that we've got and we'll basically try and book out uh, my partner and I a couple of holidays together each year so we can go camping and fishing and that sort of thing. Um, but then there'll be times where I'll just book something in for myself or with one of the boys from work, we'll go for a fish. And I think that's very important. Do you think um, on a national level, there's the opportunity for you to have more getaways sort of outside the Snowy Mountain region? Yeah, or? absolutely, mate. Um, we, we, we've just finished um, last week uh, our board uh were um, engaged in Sydney and we were doing our next five years of strategy planning. Um, and uh, by year five, we, um, we have plans in place that we will see over a 1,000 men in our community go through a program every year. Um, so that's 1,000 men a year, um, you know, investing well over $1.5 million a year into seeing community programs uh, run on a um, on a yearly basis. Um, that will see programs uh, and new chapters uh, launch across Australia. Um, we have just uh, launched yesterday a new program that is going to be uh, ha- taking place in Tasmania, um, and that is for uh, any participant who has done a men in flight program will be re uh, will will be invited back to do men in flight two point zero. Um, and uh, yeah, we're doing um, some programs in Tassie, which is very, very exciting. But we would absolutely love to get up in your part of the world and uh, and um, get some more saltwater-based uh, therapy going as well. Um, we've had a lot of you know demand from Queensland and you know getting getting up north. Um, so we are in the process of planning and and facilitating. Um, you know, time to, to get some programs launching in new parts of Australia, uh, which is very, very exciting. So um, massive challenges ahead for myself and for our board, um, but they're challenges that, you know, are met with a great great sense of, um, you know, it's, it's just so exciting to see um, the organisation continue to grow. We've probably gone from a startup phase to a consolidation phase, so we want to see the expansion and see more and more people in our community supported and, you never know in five years' time, we might have a full-time chapter in, you know, South Island, New Zealand running. So, um, the you know, the sky's not the limit because we could be up there somewhere too. Who knows? <laughs> but, you know, there's <laughs> there's so much opportunity for, for this organisation to, you know, have a really big footprint in our community here in Australia and New Zealand, and that's our commitment. We keep using the word exciting, but that's probably the best word to describe it because it really is exciting what you guys have um, accomplished in the, the first six years um, and what's going to happen, like what's on the cards for the future. Um, it really is incredible what you guys are doing. And 
I'd like to really um, say thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule, but also a big heartfelt thank you for everything that your team's doing for supporting men's health in Australia. It is a very important topic. Um, there's a lot of people that I've known over the years that have been affected by it, and it's great to know that there are organisations like the Fly Program that are making a difference, getting people connected, and that it's not just, oh, yeah, we're going away for a four-day retreat. It's inviting them back for 2.0 and and basically keeping the conversation rolling. Oh, mate, that's an absolute pleasure, and thank you for um, for you know having us on the program. It's it's a great privilege to be a part of an industry. It's an industry that I'm really passionate about. Um, whether you are you know selling a trade over a tackle counter, and you know you're you're facilitating people's experiences, whether you're mentoring your next door neighbour or you're taking your kids out fishing, we've got a great opportunity to share recreational fishing for the wonderful benefits of well-being and not only building great experiences but getting people into the outdoors and and uh, and shaping people's lives for the better it's su- such a great privilege well, I think we'll have to um, jump on at a later stage and just see how everything's shaping up and some of the new plans it'll be interesting to see how Tasmania goes um, so yeah I'll, I'll definitely try and pencil you in later on in the year or next year and see how everything's going I look forward to hearing it uh, be good thanks so much for your time buddy thanks Matt Thanks again for tuning into the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and look forward to bringing another one to you soon. To find out more about the Fly Program or if you'd like to make a donation, visit flyprogram.org.au. You'll also find the Fly Program on Facebook and Instagram where you can keep up to date with the Men in Flight programs at any upcoming events.